ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our guest segment. I'm really excited about this segment because I saw about three or four years ago the documentary about the life of James Arthur Ray and the 2009 Sweat Lodge deaths. And then just a few months ago, I started listening to a podcast called Guru, which was all about James Arthur Ray. And there's so much about this story that is fascinating. Of course, not just the deaths in 2009. Of course, that is the most tragic part of the story, but also who this man is, how he got on the Oprah Winfrey show in the movie The Secret, uh, what his background is, how he rose to fame and how he convinced people to literally take their lives in their own hands uh, to go into this sweat lodge, uh, literally to their deaths. And and it wasn't just this sweat lodge, but there were a lot of other physical challenges and stunts, if you will, that he challenged his followers to over the years. And this wasn't the first time that there was uh, danger involved. And joining us tonight is the author of a fascinating book called Tragedy in Sedona. She joins us tonight from her home in Maui, Hawaii. Connie Joy, thank you for being with us, ma'am. Good to have you with us tonight. Well, aloha, Jim. Thank you for having me. Well, I have to start by telling people a little bit about you. So you, I read most of your book today on Kindle, and you sound like just an incredibly successful lady. You and your husband, you've been involved with a lot of different businesses. You've got a real estate firm of your own in Hawaii, and you're somebody that's been a lifelong a pursuer of motivational and, and seminars and all of this. And I totally respect that. And that's one of the great things about your book. You started out by saying you're not you're not going to write this book to trash motivational teaching and self-help teaching because you're a big believer in that, aren't you? Yes, I am. Uh, you know, I think what, what you're actually my real estate business was in San Diego. Now my husband and I are happily retired in Maui. But uh, again, with, with the growth, I think what, ha- what happened through our business, because we had been in many different things. I mean, I started out as a medical laboratory technologist. I worked for IBM. That's where I met my husband, who's a PhD electrical engineer. We did a lot of the, uh, we come from a scientific uh, background. So from that, we always like kicking the tires. And we know that there's always more. Whatever you learn, there's always more. And so in our business, that was part of, uh, of our business life. If you're a broker, especially a big broker, um, you had to constantly keep honing your skills, making yourself better, making your skills better to handle and help your clients. So that's an ongoing thing. You're never done. And at one point in our lives back about exactly about 10 years ago, it's actually about 13 years ago total, 
but the sweat lodge happened 10 years ago, um, you turn around and suddenly you realize, you know, you have less traveling distance in front of you in this life than what you have behind you. So what is it that you really haven't done that you would be, you know, bummed if something happened and anything can happen at any time where your time is up? What things did you leave unlearned, undone? And there was so much. We've traveled all of our lives for both business and personal. So we got exposed to a lot of really interesting things. So we knew there was a lot out there that we knew nothing about. So when we started on this self-help, I think what you were going to see is in this entire group of people uh, that were in these seminars, these were people who really at this point in their lives wanted to become better better parents, better wives, better husbands, better mothers, better fathers, better, you know, daughters, sisters, whatever. In your life, you wanted personally now. And to be in his seminars, especially at the high-end ones that we were doing, you had to be uh, financially successful to be able to afford to pay for these things. So you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm very successful in business and financially, but now there's other parts of my life. There's physical, there's mental, there's spiritual. Um, I, I want I want to be working hard. Put me to a challenge on these because I need to grow. Yeah. And so were you uh, a follower of only James Arthur Ray or maybe did you like Tony Robbins and uh, Stephen Covey and a bunch of other ones as well? Or was it just James Arthur Ray that you seem to be attracted to? No, we follow. When you say follow, I mean, we're students of and and my husband had actually followed some of Robinson's work. Uh, Covey, we knew. Uh, we had our own mentors from the real estate groups who were not just business, but also a bit on the personal side. We had our own mentors and coaches. Um, so there were a lot, a lot of study, a lot of uh, teachings, a lot of stuff out of Hay House that we had followed. In fact, it was through one of these independent groups that offered the first, quote, free seminar with James Ray, which uh, happened in San Diego right after he had been on The Secret. And he had a quote, a free introductory seminar. And some of my agents were going to that and invited us to join him. And that's where I met him. And that was really his big breakout was being on that 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 movie, The Secret. Then there was the a book, The Secret. And that got him on with Oprah. And that is where it really it really yep. took off for him. Is that right? Well, The Secret was what brought the interest to him, but what launched him and what also changed him was uh, we knew him before he was on Oprah. In fact, we talked to him just a few weeks before he was going on Oprah. And it was the Oprah and the Larry King. Um, he was very excited about that. But at the same time, after that, what we would, what we would say is we kind of, that was the start of the progression, I would say, is to say to the darker side, to, again, ego. And I, he started believing his own hype. He started believing that he was the next biggest thing in the self-help industry, that, uh, you know, who's a superstar in this. And, and that's what started to change. Uh, before that, he was much more approachable, much more open. After that, it, it was he, he threw, it flipped a switch. It was suddenly all about him and, and making money. And, uh, you know, and there's nothing wrong with being uh, paid for what the service you provide. So, again, I said that there's nothing wrong with doing a very great seminar and then getting paid for it. Where he started really going downhill is that, well, example, to say that you lied on your resume for him would be a not an exaggeration. It, it would be an understatement. Uh, he would come out on stage and say things like, 
Uh, I am a shaman trained in uh, the Amazon. I am a kahuna trained in Hawaii. I have been trained in doing sweat lodges by Native American uh, tribes. I have been trained in holotropic breathwork. You would go down this list of stuff and I'm saying on a stage in front of thousands of people. So you sitting there would think, well, there's no way you would lie, right? I mean, there's all these people here. That's amazing. And then he's been on Oprah. So Oprah must have vetted him and she thinks he's great. And so your, your, your guard comes down. And the truth of the matter in hindsight is we hired him to teach us. Because he was all those things. And where can you find somebody that's got all that experience? Because, frankly, we don't have forever uh, to get moving on figuring out what we want to do. But in truth, with hindsight, you know, you can't be all those things. I mean, we met real shaman in uh, in Peru when we went uh, to climb Machu Picchu. Uh, there was... There were times where you see these guys who started when they were six years old. They're, they're easily in their mid-30s, and they're still following around their mentor shaman learning. Well, there's no way James Ray was a shaman. And there's no way he was <laughs> but, he, but he could just say life. that he was. And, and he has he has such an interesting, uh, like, the story of his his upbringing. So, and, and this, is the, this is the case with, with a lot of these gurus. His father was a, a pastor, I believe it, it was in Oklahoma, and so I can Traveling see, ministry. yeah, so I can see that when I'm watching him on stage, and he's a very dynamic speaker. I saw the the CNN documentary yeah. of him, uh, and he's very, uh, I yeah. mean, he's very entertaining to watch. I could sit and watch him for a few hours. Uh, he most of what he said sounded sensible, and uh, I could see that influence of his father as a pastor. But he came from humble beginnings. His father was a pastor that wasn't that didn't make very much money. That's true. And it, I have to say up front with him, one, I would caution anybody against getting too close to him for so many reasons. Um, the person who wrote the foreword for my book is a forensic psychologist. I mean, excuse me, psychiatrist. And she actually worked with several of the survivors of it. So she can more, more properly, uh, define what his, uh, what his issues are in his life. I would say most of your listeners can pretty well put their finger on it really quick. But uh, he he had one gift, which is that's the sad part about this, but it's also true with most people who are common. They're very bright, and they can really present. They can read people well, and they can present things. So what his skill was that he could take a lot of different information from a lot of different sources. Of course, he never credited these sources on where he was just lifting the information from. He would say it was his material. And and he could present it in a way that you could understand. And some of these were, were quantum mechanics, quantum physics stuff, blended in with spirituality. It was it was not an easy follow. It was there and you could follow it, but he could you know, he could present it. The problem was is that was the front. That's what he knew you wanted. But then at the same time he was working the angle all the time of what could he get you to buy into? How much more could he get you to buy into? And so the also the other thing is people call this a cult, which I would take a little issue to. In a cult, you can't leave. In his cult, the moment you can't buy a seminar, you're gone. <laughs> it was a cult, oh, but way, limited by your budget, right? So he wasn't like saying, come one and come all if by, you're... By it, your credit card. Yeah, because a cult, you could be poor and, but, and still be in the cult and be a Hare Krishna or whatever uh, whatever that is. Now, what I found, yeah. it, what I found interesting was... 
So like a lot of these motivational guys, he involved these physical challenges in his his yep. seminars. I'm a third degree Taekwondo black belt. I'm a self-defense instructor. Oh, I've, wow. I've worked as a bodyguard. Okay. I've done those things. So and I'm, a, I'm a, a shooting instructor for the NRA. Um, I I can break boards with every part of my body. I can break boards. But I can tell you this, that, yes. that that's not like that's not too super dangerous to break a board. But a lot of people have never broken a board. And it's kind of a really neat thing. You could teach them how to break a board. You could get the really thin boards. And it can mm-hmm. be like a super motivational thing. But you go from those more simple challenges and it starts to graduate up into walking on the uh, hot uh, coals. Then it's cold. bend, bending rebarb uh, with your with your neck or, or your th- throat, with your throat. Uh, you and a partner yeah. push rebarb against each other with your throats. Then there was some kind of bizarre yep. thing with the tip of an arrow that you start pressing against your your head. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it's it's progressively getting more and more and more dangerous. Then we get to the sweat lodge. Where and this is the important part of this story that that if I understand it right, people were told you're going to feel sick. You're going to feel like you're going to pass out. You may, in fact, pass out, but you're going to push through all of that. And if you're in any danger, we will pull you out. So don't let that stop you. So if you're told that going in and you've paid thousands of dollars to go into this sweat lodge experience, you don't want to be that person that wimps out and and gets out of there early. You want to stay in and go through that process. And if you were to pass out, you would trust this is an organized event. This is a big name guy. He's been on with Oprah. I'm not really nothing's going to happen to me. And yet three people died. Did did these did the da- the danger it sounds like to me was established long before the sweat lodge with a lot of these other challenges that got into the very dangerous. Jim, you know what? You you grasp something that most people don't get. And that is at the heart of the issue. Um, not only did he say that you'd be okay, he said you may feel, you're, you are going to feel like you're going to die, but you're not. Okay, so it was that strong of a statement as you went in. Now, for you got the point, which was you start out with breaking a board, you know, with your hand. Uh, later on, you move to, you know, bending rebar, walking on fire, uh, breaking an arrow against your throat. Uh, eventually, he got us to with, you know, five minutes worth of instruction to break concrete slabs with our hands. Not so easy. Fifteen people ended up with broken bones on that one. Yeah, that's a little um, bit different than a board. <laughs> yeah, it was. I still got mine. But, yeah, it, it was a lot of people got uh, got hurt on that one, That not just bruised bones. But what happens is it's each one of those things, and you're right, when you start even with a board, if you've never broken a board, it can start to be a little intimidating. So you get people up there. I used to coach people through every one of these activities. We were one of the, quote, volunteers who broke off with everybody and got them through all of it. The um, It's intimidating. But what happens is, is you get to something and you think, I can't do that. And then he says, you can do that. I know you can. And then you do it. What did you just do? You just proved him right, his judgment of you right, and your judgment of your abilities wrong. Now, you keep repeating that with successfully harder and harder things, and eventually you get to the point where you're like, I don't think I can do this, but he's telling me I can, and he's always been right, so, you know, I need to really give this my, my full my full effort, my full attention. 
Yeah, that's insane. Uh, I, I mean, when you understand, people need to understand that process because people that look at this in a snapshot and just say, oh, people went into a sweat lodge. If they were hot, they could have gotten out. No one was keeping them in there. But they're missing the whole psychological conditioning that occurred for some of these people for years that were following James Ray and involved with some of these lesser challenges. Like, for example, you're standing up on an elevated platform and you fall backwards and 10 people catch you okay that's Mm -hmm. that's done in corporate offices all around the country that's not you're not going to die you got 10 people behind you they're going to catch you i imagine some people get hurt doing that but i mean those are the kind of things where you're sort of challenging people to break through a fear that they might have but it it got stranger and stranger putting your hand into a, a a tank of snakes these kinds of things. Okay, yeah. Did, but, did you yeah. feel that? Now, did you feel like it. he had a he had a uh, personally felt like it had to keep getting more and more bizarre and cutting edge because he had to be different because after all, Tony Robbins does the hot coals and and other people do yeah. the breaking of the board, so he had to keep pushing the envelope further. Okay, what I would tell you is, is that is he wanted to pull more and more money for his events. That's what it was all about. Now, to clear this, this this sweat lodge disaster happened in 2009. Uh, Back in 2005, at his first sweat lodge, which, by the way, he was never trained by any American Indian or tribe. Uh, He was winging it in something extremely dangerous. He had a man taken away in an ambulance uh, with with, uh, heat stroke. Uh, what he was fascinated with is the guy described essentially a near-death experience. Well, somebody who has had a near-death experience, not at one of his events, but on my own, I can tell you it's, it is quite a transformative experience, um, a very spiritual. However, there is a problem with it, and that's the death part. <laughs> um, so to, to cause that, to, to go out and try to physically cause that experience, in that way is bizarre. Okay, there's something really missing in you if you think that that's okay. And that's what he was doing. When he found out that this guy had a near-death experience, other people, the year before uh, the 2009, one of our closest friends, he stopped breathing twice. The only reason he's alive is because one of our friends there was a nurse and was working on him nonstop. He he went through a near-death experience. And James was fascinated with that because I know in his mind, we talked about it. I said, don't mess with that. That is that you're you're getting people too hot. This is not safe. I used to work in emergency rooms. This is not safe. Um, you know, uh, I and actually I never thought that he would actually kill people, bake them to death. Truthfully, Jim, I thought I was concerned that somebody was going to have uh, memory issues, brain damage from the heat stroke. But what he was doing is he thought if he could induce what you know he described it as a um, an American Indian uh, ceremony that happens to bring you through an experience of a near-death experience, but you don't know it's a near-death experience. Like, we leave the death part out because it's hard to sell that, you know, to the general public. But if you can come out and say to everybody, look, I can give you this amazing spiritual transcendent experience that only I can give you. Well, that's, you know, how much does he think he can get people to pay for that? And that's where, unfortunately, his mind was going. Of course, he never showed his hand to that to anybody, especially on the outside. But that's that's what caught his attention. 
Now, Connie, I'll admit I know nothing about sweat lodges. I've, I've heard of them before, but this is something that people also do. Uh, the sweat lodge experience. I, I've read about this, that mm-hmm. people do this. You can go various weekends and I've, I'm, I'm assuming this is still something people do. What was the difference between what James Ray did with his sweat lodge that it became so dangerous compared to what would be a safer sweat lodge experience? Okay. The, from the very beginning, uh, what I objected to, and of course a lot of the Native American tribes objected to, was calling this a sweat lodge. That's what James sold it as, and that's what also made us take our guard down, because we knew of people who have gone to a sweat lodge, had a wonderful experience, and this was you know, something to be excited about. Now, here's the difference, because I've been taken through a sweat lodge experience inside a lodge. They couldn't heat it up because in Arizona at the time they had a ban on sweat lodges because of this event. Imagine that. I had a, <laughs> uh, I had a shaman who um, took us a few, like six of us through what the his pr- exact procedure would be, except no heat, so we could understand what should have happened. And and to compare it, maybe they take six, maybe twelve people, but that's it, James. Then he's going for the buck. He would stack 60-plus people, 65 people, smash them in. You're sitting you know, with somebody leaning against your knees. You're having somebody lean against both sides of you. Way too many people stuffed in there. There's no way a person can keep track of the people in there and their condition. The other thing is usually in the Native American practice, the, the person leading the sweat lodge sits in the hottest position, which is not by the door. It's opposite the door, if that makes sense to you, where the less of the air gets and where it gets the hottest. James, of course, sat on the door, and then a lot of times between rounds would be leaning outside of the door. A normal American sweat lodge, you were told from the beginning, at any time, if you need to leave, but you're also encouraged, if you want to leave in between sessions of bringing more rocks in, to go outside to cool off, to take a moment, to whatever you need. You always take care of yourself. You know, if you need help, you ask. James, if you leave, you're a loser, Okay. And you say, oh, I don't care. He can call me. Well, you, this is your graduation. This is the top event and the top activity at this event. And you've spent thousands and thousands of dollars through this whole teaching. It's kind of like you're going to your graduation ceremony and are you going to bail? The um, completely different. The other difference is, you know, maybe a few minutes each session with a Native American true sweat lodge. In his, he would go for two to three hours. Now, I'm somebody who likes heat. I live in Maui. I am, and without the COVID running around, I would be in our steam room at our fitness center every day. I know what steam and hot and what you can do and what you can't do with your body. There's nobody I am aware of who in their right mind tell you that you should go in a steam room and sit there for three hours and you can't come out earlier. You lose. Yeah. I mean, even like hot, even hot yoga, hot yoga is 104 degrees, I think. And those classes are typically 40 minutes. 45 minutes. How hot was the the sweat lodge? They couldn't get an estimate off, but I'm going to tell you way, way, way past that. Yeah. I mean, wait, steam was burning, burning. Literally, I had at one time when I swapped with somebody who was on the front front row who was getting completely torched, and I wasn't feeling as awful at the moment. I switched spots with them, and when they threw the water onto the rocks, and again, they would usually bring in four rocks. Oh, no, not James. Each round, he'd bring in eight. Ten rocks. Um, when they threw the bucket of water instead of the ladle of water over the rocks, I didn't know the steam that would splatter and come out, and I literally had burns up and down my legs. 
So, um, you know, it's super hot. So this was a heat endurance event. But if he said to you, I'm taking you on a heat endurance event, again, in your mind, you might be thinking, okay, well, if I don't like it, I'm bailing. Um, I did bail pretty quickly on the first one because I knew this was not okay. And what mindset did they think this was okay? I went back in because my husband was still in there and I was really worried about him. Um, but the, uh, it's not a sweat lodge. And so when people say it's a sweat lodge, I understand how the Native Americans felt so bad and so angry and they were justified in feeling that way. It would be kind of like an example being, say, if you were Catholic in communion and you had some guy on his own priest go off and decide that, you know what, he wanted to really increase your spiritual experience in this and he put some kind of drug or LSD or something crazy in the in the wine and gave it to all the parishioners and some people died. Okay, well, then they turn around, they say, okay, well, I'm sorry, there can be no more communion in the state of Arizona, period. Well, that wouldn't fly. Yeah, yeah. So so, that's, I, so people need to understand what, what actually did happen here. Now, I was fascinated by the money uh, side of this, too, being a financial guy. Mm-hmm. And I was reading in your book mm-hmm. that some of the financial memberships i i don't know if that's the right term but where you would like write a check for yeah. $50,000 to be inside of an inner circle with James Ray do i have that right uh you know you're way too low um it was 75,000 for a single person 150 for a or maybe they brought it down to 125 for a couple but then they were bringing it up every month you're talking about so so people understand a hundred and twenty five thousand dollars for for what Um, period of time were you in the inner circle for that a year one year oh a year it's a yearly membership yep wow now what people are going yeah so that's what i'm saying when you're there you're not this was not stupid people these are people who were very successful in their businesses and what they did so what they were doing is they're looking at okay I want to be better at the rest of my life, too, and I'm willing to work as hard at that. Now, he would slide this in as his inner circle and in that uh, the first year he gave us credits for classes that we had already bought, which was, all, was many thousands of dollars. What he also did, again, because he, I'm sorry, con men are really good at reading you and what's important. He sold us this idea as being that we were going to create a – not, I don't want to say a foundation, but essentially we were going to be pulling these dues. This is our dues for the society. And these dues were going to get brought together at the end, and we were going to invest this in a nonprofit that was self-renewing. Uh, so we were going to be looking across the world at something that was in need and that this money could be the starter seed that it would be able to keep going off of. So, you know, things like wells in Africa or small farming or the small business loans that you give to people to start their own businesses in in third world countries. So we were all down for that because we were at a point in our life where we were willing at that point to take a serious hunk of money, but we weren't going to be doing this like yearly for life. We didn't have that kind of resources, but if we could take a serious hunk of money and put it into something where we knew it would be like a legacy for us that this was going to go on for on and on schools or something that was really going to make a difference, a significant difference in a country or in a culture somewhere. And so that's how we sold it to us in the beginning. And what happened was it's over that year, all of a sudden we see all these people popping in who were clearly there for a business network 
group. They didn't care about what was our philanthropic project. Uh, in fact, they had zero interest in it. And we were picking that up, and, and that was getting back to James, like, okay, so what is our project? When are we going to be talking about this? What are we doing? And so he said, oh, don't worry, we're going to do this at the end of the year. And we went down to Mexico, just our group, and uh, he said, I want to do this away from the rest of the people. They really shouldn't have a say in it. Just the people who put their money in should be deciding what we're going to do. We're going to do that down there. So that made sense. Okay, but I also have to say, even after we paid those dues, everything we went to, like we went that first year to a trip to Egypt, well, we still had to pay for our room and the travel agent and our transportation and the, all the events. Wow, so that wasn't in, it wasn't, uh, that wasn't included. For 125000 you don't get the trip to Egypt. you got to pay that separately, but you get the right to go to Egypt. Yeah. What, what was it like to get to know James Ray more personally, as I'm sure you did as time went on? You were traveling with him. You were in his inner circle. Um, what, was the, what was the difference between the man that you would see on the stage and the man that you got to know, uh, for example, on the trips and these more personal encounters well we got to see him you know behind the curtain too because that was part of the part of being a volunteer you were working uh for free free labor at these events he would work you from very early four or five in the morning all the way through to one two three four in the morning the next day i mean that you're lucky if you got a break for lunch or dinner it was he took advantage of the volunteers pretty hard. Towards the end, he was having a little more trouble getting people to, to volunteer. But what you saw is, like, I would give an example. It, it was what put up the alarm bells in us because we're looking at he would have this script that he'd be following for the event. Each day, it was pretty well blocked out exactly what time we were going to have whatever ready and we were going to cover whatever chapter and what, yeah, I mean, it was very blocked out. But he even had on one of them, one of the guys pointed out to me, he even had a section on there where it says, James talks about his childhood. Then he cries. <laughs> when he's done crying. Have, and I, I, we looked at each other and went, so as a participant there, you'd be watching this and you'd, you'd see him cry and you'd just think, oh, wow, this is really emotional. It really still affected him, whatever. You see it three or four times at the exact same time. You start going. Yeah, okay. Well, I don't know. But what, when you work behind the stage and behind the, the curtain and he'd come back through the curtain, he was just crying. Hey, he just wipes his face and off he goes and has a, has something to eat. And he's with the metaphor the of, uh, like, would the metaphor of Wizard of Oz be appropriate, Connie? Yes. You guys were behind 100%. the curtain and you saw 100%. the. You saw the real guy yeah. behind the curtain. Now, we saw the lovers. Go, going back to the sweat lodge, I understand that. Since you were involved, you could have been one of the people at that event. You personally didn't go. Tell us why. And did you know any of the people that went and even those that that passed away as a result? Yep, they were my friends. Um, We were in the one in 2007. 2008, we didn't go. 2009, um, there used to be a hike, a private hike, that he would take only a handful of people with him in Arizona with, and we started bugging him about, well, why don't we reinstitute that hike? And it was in, in Sedona, right before this, this particular um, uh, spiritual warrior event. And he decided, Richard was, my husband was the one who kept asking for it, and he said, no, we're going to do it. This year we're going to do it. You guys coming, we're all good. So that was the plan. We were going to go. Early in that year, we were volunteering to, to work this spiritual uh event and we decided after what we had seen 
before I was completely uncomfortable, told multiple people I'm very uncomfortable with the sweat lodge. And uh, we, I just we just decided spring of that year that, no, we weren't going to go. And this happened in October. So through that year, we were watching more and more and becoming more and more uncomfortable with his behavior and pushing people too hard. It culminated with we were in Peru with him uh, at Machu Picchu at the base of Machu Picchu at one of the hotels right before we were going to climb the mountain, Juana Pichu, which is above Machu Picchu. Now, this is a serious climb. People die on that mountain every year. When you when you check in to go on that, that trail, you have to have a reservation, and they want your passport number, your next of kin to contact to claim your body. You're filling that paperwork out, so they're not fooling. Wow. Um, he was turning it into a foot race. Oh, you had to be up there by so long, and if you didn't, then you had to turn around and come back to blah, blah, blah. So people were freaking out. I just went to the person who was running the event. They had multiple guides that were with us. They were fabulous. And I said, look, can we just have one of the guys stay behind? And if it takes some people longer to get to the top and down, fine. They'll, they'll, however, if we miss the train coming back to Cusco, fine. You'll just get us on something and we'll get there. And I arranged that. Well, he found out that I arranged that. And I had, in his mind, uh, enabled people <laughs> to fail. So in my mind, I enabled people to succeed. Yeah. But uh, he was very upset that I had done that. So it turned out about 30 people in the lobby. He snipped at me. I snipped right back. And then he kept going. And it, it escalated to a pretty loud, not happy scream match. And I just told him, you're pushing people too hard, too fast. They don't have to. They're not trying out for, for the Marines. You know, this is this is not boot camp. Some of these people are elderly and using walkers. You're not walkers, but canes, you know. Come on. So you were starting at and, that point to uh, uh, to stop drinking the Kool-Aid, uh, to use the analogy. You you weren't uh, enchanted by him to the point that you were just going to do whatever he said without, without questioning. And now, one of the things, too, I found fascinating was... I think you tend you you allude in the book to the idea that he sort of almost had a messiah complex at some of the events. He started wearing oh, yeah. a white robe and 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 kind of referring oh, cool. to himself he was God. in, in, a, in a godlike way. He yeah, God. tell, tell us about that. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was a samurai uh, experience at the, and some corporate groups may be familiar with this. Um, but with a different tinge. He was doing the whole theme of Spiritual Warrior on the movie Shogun and the whole idea that it was better to live, to die with integrity rather than to live your life without it. So it was, it, it, in the beginning, it was, it was good stuff. I mean, it was, it was be impeccable with your word. If you give your word, if you say you're going to do something, do something very ironic coming from him. But, you know, be who you say you're going to do, uh, you know, have honor, stand for what you believe. Uh, so all that was all good stuff, but he carried it to a point where it started to become, quote, a game. And in this game, if it, during this game you died for some reason, like you got hit with some, you know, and believe me when I say hit, I just mean like with a little foil ball or something because it was, it was war. Um, then you had to drop dead instantly on the ground and not move. And that was your honor. You had to, you're dead. Thank you, not move. If you moved, and this was very hard. If somebody says, oh, that's not a big deal, I challenge you right now to go out to your kitchen, lay down on the floor, and stay there for three hours and don't move. Hmm. It's not pleasant. Within about 10 minutes, you are not happy about this on a hard floor. And so these people had to do this. And if you moved, 
that could cause one of your other teammates to be killed, killed in quotes. <laughs> and you had they had to drop to the ground next to you. So you had all this pressure about you can't move, you know, and you can't argue. If you argue, oh my God, you're dead, and so is probably one of your teammates too. And so just just it, bizarre it, bizarre things. It, it's almost like there should be. Uh, a movie made out of this out of this story. I, I have to ask you in our in our closing moments here. Did you see the documentary that was uh, that aired on CNN um, of his release from prison and then sort of his reunification with yeah. his family and all of the tears and everything? Mm-hmm. Uh, part of me felt mm-hmm. kind of sorry for the guy. Like, well, maybe he's learned his lesson. Maybe he really is sorry uh, and and all of that. But now I see he has the website up again and it's just like business as usual. What what was your what was your take on that? Jim, all I had to know about whether and I wrote an email right after this happened and I said, okay, look, we have to give him the space to 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 address this and to make it as right as possible. And I said, you know, we're he's supposed to be a master. Well, then let's see how a master handles this disaster. And it was, if not, then I'm going to be very disappointed. About two weeks later, I wrote another email out to everybody. says, okay, it's official. I'm extremely disappointed. He never took real responsibility for what happened. Um, how I know when he came out the other end that this was did not move anywhere inside his mind, it, um, it was that he was spinning it. And he always talked to us about, you know, it's not – not the facts, it's how you present them that people can perceive things differently. Well, no kidding. It was, I watched him and it was all about the spin. So suddenly, instead of being three clients, you know, two clients died. And a, if he wants to call the other volunteer friend who had been his friend for seven years, but he never bothered visiting her the week she was in ICU in a coma before they, they, before she passed. So if you want to loosely call that a friend, a friend, but the other two were clients. And how he spun this to get more sympathy for himself is that he had a terrible accident at one of his events and three of his friends died. Feel sorry for him. Yeah. And it's, it and, sounded like he was saying uh, this, this like happened to him, like he didn't really have any yes, involvement in it, but he's now embracing this to use this for the, for his future, uh, you know, business uh, or his, you know, motivational seminars. Oh, he, yeah. He's going to use this going forward. One of the things that disturbed me the most was the story that he like immediately left the state, um, you know, as opposed to. <laughs> You would, I would, I mean, I would think any decent human being would have been by the bedside, bed, been to the, to the morgue to meet the families, whatever could be done that you could offer your condolences and, and offer money, whatever you could do to try and make things right. Uh, and, and obviously after someone has died, there's nothing you can do to bring them back, but you could certainly do everything that you could within your power. I, I had read, I don't know if it's true that refunds weren't even given to people that had families where someone had Never. died. He had fled the state. What do you know about those things? Well, I know a bit about those things. Um, I think you learn everything you need to know about him. And the only reason I, I you know, again, I'm, I'm talking to you about this is because he's still out there and you judge from this, if this is a man you want to trust with your life or the life of someone you love. When, after this sweat lodge, you have to picture this scene. There's 20, 30 people on the ground foaming at the mouth, eyes rolled back uh, in, in, in shakes and convulsions. And there's three people in the back. They're doing CPR in. 
uh, uh, helicopters are flying in and landing. One has already landed, who's taking one of our good friends away. Uh, another one circling, trying to land to take uh, another person away. There were several people taken out. In the middle of all that, he leaves. And he goes back up to his room. And he takes a shower and he has his assistant go get him his sandwich for dinner. When the lieutenant shows up at the site, he asks, where is the person who is responsible for this? Who, is, who runs this event? And nobody knew where he was. Finally, somebody said, oh, he's up at his room. Yeah, we'll show you where he is. So he sends up one of the uh, deputies to go get him and bring him back down. And the deputy gets there. He's sitting at a table and he's eating his sandwich. Now, I don't know about you, Jim, but if I was just responsible for what happened, probably the last thing on my mind would be what's for dinner. Yeah. Um, he was eating a sandwich in his underwear after he took his shower and the deputy explained to him that he needed to come back down. And James tried to shake that off and say, oh, I have staff down there. They can answer your questions. He said, no, you need to come back down. He, he goes, put your pants on. We're going. So James starts to walk out the door and he says, oh, is this going to be a while? Do I need a jacket? And the deputy says, yeah, you better bring a jacket. Okay. As soon as he got done talking to them, while this whole thing was going on, he had, he had sent his chief of operations to the gift shop, which had the only reliable landline out where Angel Valley was very remote. So cell co coverage was very spotty at best. She went on the line and she got and talked to his PR people and his lawyers. That's who he called. That's who he had her calling. As soon as he was released after that, he went to the gift shop to meet her, talked to the lawyers. They advised him to blow the state, and that's exactly what he did. He left everything behind in his room, and he ran. So that explains everything you need to know. Meanwhile, all the rest of the people, they've been informed that their friends are dead, uh, that other people are, there's probably going to be more. There are many people in critical condition taken out of there. They're all meeting together in the cafeteria area and they're just, you know, trying to console each other. And there's no James in sight. No James had fled the state. And altogether, he served 20 months in prison, yeah. which is less than two yeah. years in prison for the death mm -hmm. of three people. Yeah. Was was there, I think there was some kind of a settlement, is that right, with the people that had passed away, a legal settlement? Yeah, but it was pretty It was pretty trivial. The settlement didn't, I don't believe it went into his money. If there's any karma in the world, the good news is that this team of lawyers that he hired for many millions of dollars that was our money. You know, it was all the fees that people had prepaid for everything that all disappeared into this black pot of him. Um, but he stiffed them. I might just heard for half the year, their bill. He didn't pay them. But um, he, the only money that supposedly was available, this guy, he, again, he put out this persona that he was this multimillionaire with all these houses. When he got down to equity, he had nothing. And uh, the only thing that was there was the insurance policy. He had a small personal one and then a small a little bit bigger, but not much, on the business. And so uh, they divided it up in the, the family members who had passed. Some people who were hurt got some settlements out of it, but uh, no, nobody got rich. In fact, uh, like uh, example being Kirby Brown's parents let bulk of the money go to James Shore's uh, wife and kids because he had three small children at the time, and they felt that obviously she was going to have the, you know, the harder road to, to travel there, raising these kids on their own. And what do you know, Connie, about where James Arthur Ray is today and what the state is of his business 
uh, seminars, all of that sort of thing. Is is there a comeback happening? And uh, have you heard anything through the grapevine about how many people are attending, how much money he's collecting, and uh, what sort of uh, you know status he has present day uh, as a guru? He immediately tried to restart the the whole thing with his new spin. He put out a book, Redemption, again, trying to spring off the thing that somehow he's recovering from this terrible loss, which, you know, you're not really uh, talking about the spin again. Now, what he did do is he tried to, to request to the court to put aside his conviction so that he could travel internationally. Now, we all know that he wanted the conviction put aside so he could spin it that they had overturned his guilty verdict and he really wasn't guilty. Hmm. But, no, he was guilty, and the judge wouldn't overturn it. He did want to travel internationally, and our belief is he wanted to get into other countries because he had kind of burnt his bridges here in, in the U.S. He was trying to get up to Canada. He was trying to get in, into Europe or somewhere somewhere else where they hadn't already heard as much about him, although I'm not aware of where that would be with the Internet these days. But that's what he wanted. He didn't get it. Um, but that dragged all the families back to Arizona again to, to you know, object. So I'm sure he and he asked, when can I try? When can I ask again? And I don't think he was given a, a specific answer. So he's going to go. What, ha, what what can you what can you see about it? Well, if you look at his Facebook postings, he has a, an automatic program that just puts out, you know, blurbs every so often. Same thing on Twitter. Um, I'm not seeing a big following of it. He has followers, but if you look at ho- who's commenting and how many are watching it, it's not many. So that kind of gives us heart. One of the family members, Kirby Brown's family, started a foundation called Seek Safely, Seek, S-E-E-K, Safely. And it's to try to get information out there about different seminars. Again, not putting down all self-help seminars. Some, you know, people put out an honest project and they come with a good heart and they come with a good direction. There's no reason they shouldn't be, you know, properly you know, paid for, for their work. And, and there's good people out there. There's tons of good people out there. Unfortunately, it's a two, three, four billion dollar a year business. And with that, you know, it takes nothing. Jim, you and I could both write up cards tomorrow saying we're shamans and pass them around and search for shamans. <laughs> Yeah, I looked into that. uh, I looked into that organization by Kirby Brown's family and some of the things they're asking for seem really reasonable for the motivational guru to disclose their actual education, to agree uh, to safe practices. Um, Some of what they're doing is almost like practicing as a psychiatrist without a license when i saw some of the the video oh, clips on cnn i saw the cnn documentary again today i rewatched it some of the approaches where he gets for example somebody to stand up and start talking about their past and then he gets them to admit in front of a whole audience that they've been sexually abused then he begins to like uh-huh. berate them why they haven't had a breakthrough yet and and I'm I'm watching this and I'm like man that that's that person is being re-traumatized and I'm not you know a trained psychiatrist but some of these people are really crossing into what would take years of of legitimate training to be able to help someone and this idea of doing that in front of a group of hundreds of people it just seems to me to be the opposite of of healing in some cases thousands of people yeah uh with the money he was making off of these seminars 
to at the very least have had a medical person in the back of the room and at the very least to have had a psychologist in the back of the room that when somebody was what we would recognize as the volunteers looking at people saying, you know what, that person needs professional help. You know, it's, this is not in our wheelhouse anymore of helping them through their little assignment here. They need professional help. There was nobody for us to send them to. And, and I definitely saw several people who I was thinking, oh gosh, I'm really hoping they, they get, I've told them, you know, I crossed, I said, you need, you, you, you need to, when you go home, you need to reach out. If you can't find anybody, call United Way, you know, call these different organizations. They'll put you in touch with somebody. You, you need to talk. Is there somebody you can call tonight? Do you have a relative you can call? But there was nobody there officially from uh, from the James Way group to do that. And you're right. There were people there who were having breaks. I mean, and I don't mean it's breakthroughs. They, yeah. I they, mean, literally. Okay. Yeah. Gone, and there was was too far. Wasn't there a suicide Connie in San Diego as well? Oh, gosh. Tell me about yeah. that. Colleen Connolly. That was my daughter was at that event. I went to it at the end for the celebration black tie dinner. I'd been at that event several times, uh, participating in it. Um, there's part of the event, which in itself may seem weird, but was actually very educational for, for me. Uh, that at one point in the room, you're given donated clothes that are in bad shape. You leave behind all your stuff, your phone, everything. You have a little slip of paper with an emergency phone number to call, but you put on these clothes, you look homeless. They dirty you up a bit, mush up your hair, and they turn you loose, drop you off in the street in downtown San Diego, <laughs> and you're told for the next four hours, make do. So and you're you're to, it, like, pretend you're homeless for four hours. Yep. And if you want lunch, figure it out. If you want uh, whatever that means to you. And for some people, just being alone without their phones, without their stuff, um, was a lot. For some women, I found out, and it's just kind of sad, they locked themselves in, there's a big uh, shopping center in the middle of the town uh, called Horton Plaza, and they now locked themselves in the Nordstrom's bathroom and refused to come out the entire time because they, their makeup was gone, and they were all smeared up, and their hair was smeared up, and they were definitely not dolled up, you know, kind of a thing, and they had never, they would never go out, you know, it's all different levels for every person. There was one guy there who had a Major breakthrough. He realized he had a huge construction company, and uh, he told told us when he got back, he spent most of the time sitting on a park bench in one of the places sobbing because he had realized he he had been business was not going well. He had used all his credit cards up to try to keep it afloat, and any minute it was going to come crumbling down. And his family had no idea. His wife, his kids. They they literally are going to lose everything any second, and he felt like a fraud and a loser. And you know, he said, "This could be me. They could leave me. I could be on you know sitting on a curb on my own." He said, "That's how close I am to this." So I mean, every you you can have a major experience. It's up to you. I mean, you can sit there and have no experience, but generally, some of these things will shake you a little out of your comfort zone. So what happened with Colin Conaway? Uh, her sister, everybody said that she was really excited to go to this event. She was starting a new business on her own, a private business. And part of the first day of this event is you're talking about what are your business plans? Uh, um, what is it you want to do? What is it you're going to grow? Somewhere in there, something happened to her that shook her so badly that when she went to Horton Plaza where you were dropped off, she went up to the third story of the building and jumped off the balcony and into the middle of the food court below. Now, 
what yeah what happened with that though was nobody at the event knew that even happened nobody nobody was told inside the group now inside of james ray's group yeah they knew something they knew that she was missing they knew that she didn't come back uh friends of mine were volunteers at that event they kept saying where is colleen where's colleen eventually they were notified that colleen had left and she wasn't coming back and all everybody could think of is, gosh, what did she do so bad that they won't let her come back? Huh. And it wasn't, uh, I mean, everything was business as usual. I was at the black tie event after that. I, I talked with James. I talked with most of the staff. I talked with the volunteers. You know, the, the James Ray group was not letting anybody know anything happened because I guess they figured there was no good way to spin this. And the rest of the group had no idea it had happened. My daughter had no idea. It was, it was actually after the sweat lodge. That finally the information came back and said, "Yeah, you know that suicide in Horn Plaza that was calling." Wow, just unbelievable! And uh, your book gets into a lot more details. It's available on Amazon. It's available also as a Kindle book. Um, do you have a website or anything you'd like to give out, Connie, for people that would like to get in touch with you? Actually, at this point, we're retired. So, I mean, you can go through the book if you would need to. You can contact my publisher who can put you in touch with me. Um, and uh, again, essentially, uh, the book is, is just available on Kindle and through Amazon. Uh, and is, again, individual questions or whatever, you can send them to the publisher. She's been forwarding them to me. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's it's fascinating. And uh, I, I love your approach because I'm with you. I don't think that all success and motivational training is bad. But obviously, there are these individuals that can become dangerous. And uh, James Arthur Ray is going to be around for a while. I think he's only in his early 60s. So um, he's going to be around he for a while. He's one year different than me, 60, 63, I think. Yeah. Yep. So he's, he's going to be, well, I don't know that he's going to retire. So yeah, he's he's going to be around. Time. And so people need to know the full story. Connie Joy, thank you so much for joining us. God bless you, ma'am. Thank you, Jim. Wow. What a story. <laughs> what a story. I have to tell you. And I'll, by the way, um, you know, I think it would be fascinating and I'd love to do it. Uh, James Arthur Ray, if you're watching tonight, if you're listening tonight, if you're listening to the replay, which you may very well be, uh, I would love to talk to you on this show. And I would like to hear your side of this. Uh, I am, you know, this is not 60 minutes. I give you a fair shot at coming on and, and, and giving your explanation uh, to these things. I do believe in, in uh, people reinventing themselves. I believe in forgiveness. I believe in second chances. I don't know James Arthur Ray. I don't know his heart. Um, there's a lot of questions here and, and a lot of, uh, dubious uh, actions both before, during, and after all of this that make me uh, sort of doubt the redemption story. But hey, if you want to come on, James Arthur Ray, this this will be a forum for you. I'll give you the full 45 minutes to uh, give your side of the story and respond to any of this if you would like to. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course, next week we've got Lee Wheel here as we discuss the Charles Manson story, which in and of itself is so, so very fascinating. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody.